Hello and welcome to True Love No Shame, a podcast on recovering from Christian purity culture. I'm Danny Fankhauser, author of Shameless, How I Lost My Virginity and Kept My Faith. You can learn more at shamelessthebook.com. I'm here today with Laura, the creator of No Shame Movement, which is first off a hashtag, um, now also a, a Twitter feed and a website. And Laura, I guess I can ask you what what, what other places are you right now and how did this um, movement get started? Hi. Uh, yeah, well, thanks for having me. The, the most um, active places right now are Twitter and Tumblr. It's also on Pinterest and Facebook and Instagram. It's a labor of love for me. And I like I don't really get paid for any of this, so I'm the person that updates them. But it did start off as a, as a hashtag, basically wanting to talk more about purity culture online and feeling like uh, the conversation that was having was inadequate. What that was what that was being had was inadequate. And I talked with uh, two people that I had built a relationship with online um, about my idea and we brainstormed and we came up with No Shame Movement. And then we shortened it for Twitter. Um, and then I decided, well, I might as well make a Twitter website, a Twitter site. Just And it kind of went from there. So, yeah, it has basically um, grown organically. It's uh, But the first and foremost, the purpose of it is to be a platform. Um, so I don't do a lot of I don't write a lot of posts. For it, I basically elevate a lot of people's stories and I curate information. And um, when uh, when I talk about it being organic, I pay attention to uh, what kinds of conversations people are having and the stories people are sharing. And from when it started, you know, it started out with purity culture, but it's branched out to I talk about relationships, about particularly abuser dynamics, about um, gender norms and gender roles talk a lot about sexual uh, sexual orientation and gender identity because a lot of the folks that were sub- following and supporting the site had you know sort of different different kinds of backgrounds and had different ways that this rhetoric had affected them because of course it affects people differently um but those were the narratives that came out just people feeling well people especially people who are lgbt feeling erased from the whole concept altogether and then um, people who um, felt like they were being stifled or felt that this was a notion that didn't include them. I heard, especially from a lot of women, most of the people I, I would say that support the site are are women or people identify as women. Um, but I heard from a lot of plus size women, particularly, who talked about how one of the probably unintended consequences was um, for them being by default, immodest, or it being a standard that wasn't meant for them. I also am really, um, I'm really interested in featuring stories from people who are overlooked. I myself am Black American cisgender woman, since a cisgender straight woman. One of the motivations for the tag um, was that there was there was starting to be a conversation. Um, there was some evangelical bloggers who have been talking about it. And I noticed, um, the conversation mostly centered on white women. And it also seemed to have a caveat. It would say purity culture is bad, but at the end, there was still only one choice. You still had to wait, but Hey, maybe we should just not shame people, but still wait. 
And, and, you know, it's like, well, what about the rest of us that don't want to wait or, you know, find ourselves in our thirties like myself and not married yet, or some people don't want to get married. Um, or when purity culture, when the, when no shame movement started at the time, it was still illegal in most states for some people to get married. So, yeah. So for me, it was like, um, I wanted to, uh, add um, my perspective to the conversation uh, because, like I said, it affects people in different ways. But first and foremost, for me as a Black woman, it's important to understand that that was, not a, that was a standard that was not meant, to me, meant for me to begin with. And yet Black women are expected to uphold that standard. So, um, so yeah, those were my main motivations. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's why the name is so perfect, because it does have um, so many applications to to different situations that people have, especially, you know, coming from this concept of, of purity culture. And I love that you mentioned that people talk about it like there's still only one option because that's that's kind of what I see as well as even with like the, the very like feminist and progressive bloggers that they'll, you know, they'll be open and affirming of, of a lot of other things, but on this one topic, they still... Uh, I feel like they, a lot of them still don't come out and say like, Hey, it's okay to, to have sex before you're married. So let's, let's actually talk about your background too. Did, I think you grew up evangelical as well. Uh, that's my background. Uh, yeah, I grew up, well, was, I guess it was, um, maybe a hodge, not a hodgepodge. Um, I grew up around, um, and in evangelical communities, um, we went to a Mennonite church for part of my childhood and um actually went to a Mennonite college um I went to a black Pentecostal or charismatic church um for some time as well but I would say yeah as far as community was concerned or the Christian culture that I know the most about I would say it's evangelical and particularly mostly white evangelical communities I I grew up I'm Give I'm giving away my age, but um, I grew up in the 90s. Um, so uh, in the 80s, you know, there was the moral majority. Evangelicals were all excited because they felt like they had a friend in Ronald Reagan in the White House. And it was kind of that was kind of the start of um, the church um, getting more involved in politics. So when I was a teenager and in college in the 90s, uh, so it was kind of after the moral majority. And it was when there was this kind of frenzy of we need to get, we need to uh, make Jesus cool for the kids, but we also need to make sure they keep their legs closed. And so, you know, the stereotype of the youth pastor, you know, with the, you know, like 50 and dressed like a 20 year old and like, <laughs> and uses outdated slang and stuff. I feel like, and I know there might be people who are older than me that can dispute that, but I feel like a lot of that started when I was a teenager or became popular. Um, conservative Christian music. I'm giving an anthropologist answer, sorry. <laughs> um, well, like conservative Christian music, um, like, oh, we're the Christian version of Jay-Z. Oh, yeah, the Christian yes. bookstore with like the the grid of yes. music where you could find what you yes. would like. <laughs> that was, that became, that became larger and more controversial um, when I was a teenager. So yeah, so I, I feel mm -hmm. like it was not just the community, but the time period um, that I grew up in really shaped a lot of what I a, a lot of what I understood about Christianity. Um, I actually 
moved overseas um, with my parents as a teenager. Um, we went to Ghana and West Africa. They went there to do mission work. And that actually was the start of my own sort of, I guess, unlearning. Because um, I was basically pulled out of my comfort zone and um, was in a foreign country as a missionary kid and trying to navigate a new culture as a teenager when, you know, your your own worldviews haven't fully formed yet either. So, so that also has, uh, that heavily influences um, how I, how I see faith and kind of how I see myself as a Christian. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. And I think I grew up in the same time. And I remember, like, I also read Brio magazine, which I think that's part of what you're saying is like, Christian like media just had to have its own version of everything. Um, I remember at one point the the Christian bookstore sold (laughs) books of the Bible that were designed as magazines. So you could look like you were reading a magazine, but it was actually just like the Bible. (laughs) I remember that. Yeah. Right. (laughs) I, I, Brio is, you know, that Brio started up again. Oh, did it? No, I didn't know that. (laughs) Yes, it did. I, um, I actually took one for the team and subscribed because Uh they're, they don't have hardly any online presence, which I think is fascinating, but, um, and it's a different editor than before, but yeah, they, they started, they started up, um, I think in the sum in the spring, um, mm-hmm. I, I had a project for a while where I was live tweeting some of the articles. Oh, um, yeah. Cause I, yeah. Cause I thought, I'm really curious. I want to see what they're posting, but I'm going to have to give them my hard earned $20 in order to find out. <laughs> but yeah, um, it's basically kind of an answer to teen Vogue. Oh, um, okay. if you've been kind of following, um, they had been doing a lot more hard hitting journalism, <clears throat> talking about justice and things like that. And, um, so focus on the family was kind of like, oh, okay, we need to um, offer a Christian alternative, and so they decided to bring Brio back. Now, in- coincident, now incidentally, they did not bring back Breakaway, interesting, um, which was the guy's version. Yeah, yeah, I think that's interesting too. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, so they, so yeah, that's back. Um, I'm gonna try to re, I'm gonna try to do more um, tweeting of that. Um, just FYI, I. Um, use the hashtag Lola Reads Brio. Brio. Um, so, um, and I, I can, I can send you that hashtag if you like. But, um, but yeah, it's really interesting because uh, it's fairly obvious that it's mostly for parents um, who are worried about their kids, you know, going to hell in a handbasket, mm-hmm. um, and not so much. And I mean, it's it's supposed to be for teens, but I mean just. The nature of the writing and the topics, um, it's really, it's, it's really for parents. Right. Um, so yeah, it's kind of interesting. I don't, I've been trying to find, track the, the online presence. I haven't seen a lot of people talking about it. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's super interesting. Um, and then what about <laughs> music too? I, I know I remember this, uh, Rebecca St. James song, wait for me. That was like a very clear, like purity culture song. Uh, yeah. was there any other music yeah. that kind of influenced you back in the day? DC talk. Mm-hmm. Um, if you remember them, uh, I was a huge fan. Actually, I still listen to them. Um, they were, there's a, some leftovers from my CCM phase, uh, that I still listen to because I actually think they make 
good I think they're they're layers that they make good music but um yeah they were a huge influence um I had a huge crush on Toby Mac Uh (laughs) um yeah and I remember oh what and it's funny because I feel like even when I was a teenager when I knew I was supposed to believe this stuff I was still skeptical and I still found a lot of these pro waiting um songs corny Mm-hmm. Um, and the, what was it? Oh, I don't want it. That was their most pro abstinent song. I don't want your sex. That was on the free at last album. And I mean, just listening to it, it's like my least, it was, even then it was my least favorite song. Cause I just thought it was a stupid song. Um, and there was another one called, um, that kind of girl. And it's, it's basically, three minutes of slut shaming uh-huh. um yeah and you know talking about the kind of girl he wants and and the kind of girl he doesn't want um women who smoke or drink or curse um or you know other unseemly unseemly things so those are the two that pop into my head immediately uh there's also um uh they were part of the Winans. Oh, like BD, family BD and CC or... compound. Yeah, <laughs> it was Angie and Debbie. Oh, okay, yeah, Angie and Debbie. Um, actually, they had a ballad that was actually a really good ballad, but it was really problematic lyrics. Um, and it was basically about it felt like love, and it's kind of the trope of you think you're in love, um, or you think sex is love, but it's not. Um, it's not real love. <laughs> Waiting, you know, you need to wait. That's real love. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, uh, those yeah. So those are the three that come to mind the most. Yeah. And then what about um, your family? Did your parents have like a, a talk with you about sex, or how did you kind of learn about it from that angle? Yeah. Uh, well, they had the. It was it was interesting. There was they were good about um, just sitting me down, telling me the basics. Um, they actually did that when I was eight. And uh, that I'm very grateful for. It was pretty short conversation. But, yeah, they told me the basics. Um, and before I get into how they gave me a lot of terrible advice, I will say this. My mother always called genitalia their actual names. And it never occurred to me until I was an adult, um, and especially when I was working with kids and work, being around parents. Like, my mother never had nicknames. They were penis and vagina. And like, um, there's a lot of other problematic stuff she said, but I do appreciate that because, and even now, like I have, I have a hard time using, like I'll use them like sort of tongue in cheek, um, nicknames, but I can't really fathom calling them anything else. And I can't fathom calling them something else to your child or believing that it's wrong to say penis and vagina in front of your child. Um, right. Well, it's, I've also heard that it helps prevent abuse if kids know the name of that, because then they can speak about if something wrong happens. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, and it's just, yeah. I mean, I just, I don't understand why you wouldn't want your child to know the name of something that's on their body. Um, right. But yeah, so that's, so that's the one, that one thing they did well, but, uh, for the most part, uh, my the message was mostly from my mom, um, and it was God wants you to wait till you're married. But more importantly, sex was something that men, boys, and men and boys want to get from you, and you have to keep them from getting it. That was essentially how mm-hmm. it was framed. 
which had probably unintentional on her part, but the unintentional consequence of um, making me think that men were predators or I kind of internalized that men were predators and it really affected mm -hmm. um, my relationships or um, attempted relationships when I was, when I was older. Um, she, and she would try to have talks with me and she would always say, you know, you can always ask me questions if you have questions. And, um, and I'll say this, and if there's any parents listening to your, your podcast, and I'm sure there probably are, um, and you're wondering about um, your kids being honest with you, don't set them up to lie. <laughs> I think that's one of the biggest things. Don't, don't set your children up to lie. If on one hand you say, um, which my parents said, oh, well, you can always ask questions. But on the other hand, at every chance you get, you paint sex as dirty. Um, you, when people say, use um, sexual terms, you say that's disgusting. When you tell your young daughter that women get yeast infections because they have too much sex. <laughs> because mm -hmm. I remember the yeast infection commercials would come on and she'd say, those women got it from having sex. And then I learned later that you could also get it from wearing tight jeans. And <laughs> <laughs> um, because of that, like my mother said one thing, but... I never felt comfortable asking her any detailed questions um, because of her approach to it. Mm -hmm. um, things, and I think things that's were really like clearly like bad. So it was sort of like, yes. yeah. And so um, I think that starts with just not even when you sit down, like sex ed really is your everyday language. It's not just what you, um, and I hopefully I want to be a parent one day and hopefully I'll remember this, but it's not just what you sit down and tell them. It's also how you react um, to things on TV, how you react to things that you see like in movies or basically, yeah, like it's, it's um, the way you react to um, uh, people who have different beliefs. Yeah. All of that, like that pay, kids, kids pay attention to that. Um, and they internalize the messages you send. Um, if you, um, are watching a movie and your kid and, you know, you go through scenes where like Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, mows down 20 people with a machine gun, but then as soon as a sex scene starts, then you fast forward, you know, that sends a message, <laughs> uh, that sends a very clear mm -hmm. message, um, mm -hmm. about like what, what you believe is acceptable and what isn't. And not that my parents condoned violence, but, it, you know, it's very telling. And, you know, that's, that, that sticks with people when violence um, is not as objectionable as uh, a, a sex scene. Yeah, I mean, that would make it very hard to ask a simple question about sex if, if it's like something that's always fast forwarded and like something that you're not supposed to see. Right. And also um, just... I, I never really learned, and um, that was one of the biggest things about having this community is finding other like-minded people. I found uh, I I found that it can really leave you emotionally stunted, emotionally stunted, because um, I never really learned how to form a relationship. I never learned how like what to do if you liked a guy, um, you know, how to approach him or what you know. It was always keep them away, keep them away. Um, you don't have time for crushes, um, you know, keep boys away. And so when you get to be an adult and you're trying to navigate relationships, 
uh, that was the biggest, that was the biggest thing for me is I just, and I still have a hard time. Um, I still have not been in any long-term relationship. That's one of the main reasons others are, I have a hard time staying in one place, but, um, you know, that it has long-term consequences in terms of their ability to form healthy relationships. So, yeah, so that's, that's in a nutshell, I think how, how my parents taught or didn't, or didn't teach me about sex. I also had no formal sex education. Um, I was pulled out of public school after fifth grade, partly because of that, because they were going to start sex ed. And um, I was put into Christian schools after that. And of course it was Mm -hmm. keep your legs closed was our sex ed there. Yeah. I was in um, public school in California and they, they did have um, like a health class that had a week that was on sex ed, but your parents had to um, sign a permission slip. And I was the one person in my class that did not take part in that. So I essentially did not have sex ed either. Yeah. I'm, I think what you're saying is so interesting because I had such a, a similar experience where I kind of got to my mid twenties and was like, I'm like, I haven't really dated at all. Um, and like, and that's why I started online dating because it was, I just didn't know how to approach the situation. I didn't know how to flirt with someone or express interest. And it was kind of like, I'm, I'm suddenly going to be, you know, like 55 and, and still be single and alone if I don't figure this out somehow. Um, but that's why I think it's so interesting how you're kind of talking about, uh, the idea that like men, men are predators and women have to kind of like fight them off because I think that's also what I internalized. Right. And like, that's, and it's, and it's kind of, it's unnecessary, you know, like it's, it's it's a part of sort of the dichotomy of we're we're so scared of our kid they're so scared of their kids making wrong decisions and I know you know I know my mom and dad had the best of intentions for me you know like I know this wasn't stuff they did out of like mm-hmm. malice or anything but if if you're not equipping folks um to if you're not equipping folks to approach these things in a right, right in the right way and on the other hand, but you're supposed to be married. Those things really don't add up, you know? Yeah. And I, I think the the biggest thing, um, again, going back to sort of the dichotomy is um, that you don't learn boundaries. Um, that's something I've been thinking a lot, thinking about a lot more uh, lately, especially with um, all the stuff that's been going on with um, predator, predatorial men being outed everywhere. It's quite glorious. Um, but for me, it's it's when you when you don't learn how to set boundaries um, with a significant other or even with, you know, don't be friends with someone of the opposite sex, which is ridiculous, because, um, again, it sets people up to only and particularly for men to only see women as sex objects. If it's like, well, you can't be mm-hmm. friends with a woman, um, you know, and and if you and, and also if you um, teach kids that. um like there's a slippery slope and like there's no in between like you either are chased or as soon as you start kissing it's just you're on the freight train to fornicationville and there's no stopping um again uh that's really unhealthy for for people because you know for one thing like you were talking about earlier i think it can open folks up to abuse in situations where um, assault is involved because if you don't 
if you don't learn, if you, if you think of yourself as someone who's just this less driven animal who can't stop, um, how is that a healthy way to see yourself and your sexuality? Mm-hmm. Um, if you, yeah, or, or just, you know, the fact that you can say no, like I have, I've, I know of quite a few friends, um, growing up who got the same message as me, but also, but never really got the message. You can say no. Like if you're in a situation with a significant other, you can just say no. And many, you know, there, there were consequences from that. Um, and, you know, they're sort of dealing with the fallout of, I didn't know that I could refuse. So, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Boundaries, boundaries, I think are huge. Yeah. I think that was also my experience when I started, um, dating non-Christians was that I just like, I didn't know if there was some sort of etiquette and just because of what I had learned in church, I just thought that like they would want to sleep with me on the first date and that like, that was something I was supposed to do. And so it took a while to realize like, actually even non-Christians, like they don't really do that for the most part. And like, and it's always just up to personal preferences and there's nothing wrong with that. Right. It reminded me of something else too. Yeah. Like the other dichotomy of non-Christian versus Christian you also set people up for failure and bad relationships when you paint, like you said, like, well, non-Christian, like for women, particularly for non-Christian men um, will just want to take mm-hmm. from you and they won't respect you, but Christian men will. And, um, <laughs> and again, just all the host of host of problems that, and that's and the host of problems that creates. And also partly why we have so many hurt Christian men on on social media objecting to um, the church to hashtag talking about sexual abuse in the church because it's just you've been taught well Christian equals respect and and good and we treat women well and that's simply not true Um, and again um, when you paint this sort of false sense of security if you give people a false sense of security Again, that can lead to all kinds of situations and it can lead to people being in abusive relationships um, and, you know, all those other kinds of things. Um, Yeah. And so just to rewind a little bit, I know you mentioned um, moving to Ghana was kind of a turning point for you. What was kind of like the deconstruction or or what really like changed your mind about um, the way that you think about faith, especially in terms of intimacy? Well, I... um... Up until then, I was, um, especially the last four years, the four years before I went to Ghana, I was in a Christian, um, conservative Christian school, and there was a lot of talk about godly dating, um, you know, doing dating God's way, and you know, it was it was okay, it was allowed, you know, just no funny business, and then I moved across the ocean um, to Ghana, which is a um, majority Christian country, and. There and now this was in the 90s, um, so um, I can imagine that you know there's probably been a lot of stuff that's that's evolved since then. But in the but back then, um, I learned very quickly that dating was not a lot was not considered a Christian thing to do. And I remember just kind of stopping and thinking, wait, what? Because you know when you're a teenager, the adults around you especially in the Christian communities, they're very black and white, right? They're like, well, we're really clear and we have the answers and we're giving them to you. Mm -hmm. So the adults in my life in the U.S. were clear that dating was okay as long as X, Y, and Z happened. The the adults in Ghana were clear that dating was not okay. And so at some point I stopped and thought somebody's lying 
And, and since then, and that was the start. I didn't know it at the time. Mm -hmm. I still believed they had bought the purity culture thing for years, but that really was the start. That was the seed that was planted. Um, because all of a sudden it's like, oh, there's, there's other ways to be Christian. Um, and then there's a whole host of other things. I remember the first time I met a pastor who was a woman, um, was in Ghana. Um, the first time I heard a pastor curse, um, <laughs> I laugh about it now, but at the time I thought, wait, she's a pastor, but she's cursing. I don't understand. You know, just <laughs> so many different things. Um, and, and where I realized, wait, there's a, there's a different way that people can be. Um, and, and this is something that a lot of missionary kids in general, um, and a lot of kids that, um, spent some of their childhood in other countries, they deal with a lot and then coming, you know, coming back home and reconciling a lot of that. But yeah, that was the, that was a huge influence. And I remember the first time I met a Christian who, um, had, who was sexually active and was not ashamed of it. Cause that was another thing. Um, and I can say, particularly, I know, um, and I've talked with this with other black Christian friends in the black church, particularly because there is a form of purity culture um, that sometimes takes on different forms, but similar messages um, in the black church as well. But there's this um, this notion of like there's folks that go to church and they listen to the message um, and and they go out and they're sexually active, but there's they kind of live in this gray area where like, well, we know our pastor says it's wrong and we know it's wrong, but we're going to do it anyway. And I think there's a lot of Christians in general mm -hmm. um, that do that and did that especially. So when I was younger, I mean, I knew of like other teenage friends who had gotten pregnant or male friends who had gotten their girlfriends pregnant, but it was always a level of shame around it always. Mm -hmm. And in college, um, I was talking to someone who was um, talking about her first sexual experience and she just kept talking. And I just, like, I was waiting for the, and I'm, you know, I feel ashamed, but it never came. Like she just kept talking about it. And again, it was one of those, again, that was a seed. It was, a, you know, at the time I remember thinking she was wrong. I didn't tell her, but I remember thinking she was wrong, but also thinking, wait, what? Um, and it's it's little things like that when you hear when you talk to folks or you hear things um um similar messages over and over um and after a while you start to reconcile them with what what you were taught and then you try to do the math mm -hmm. <laughs> and the math doesn't add up so yeah it was yeah definitely little um little points along the way but again like you know, for the most part, it has been most it has been mostly Christians um, who are the folks who have kind of helped me understand because I had non-Christian friends who were sexually active. But again, like we had talked about that dichotomy before, I was like, oh, well, they're not Christian. So mm -hmm. that was the explanation. Um, but then when Christian friends would talk about it, that was when I started understanding what all this meant. And that's why for me, like I when people talk when I talk about my faith, like I. Um, I try to make it clear on the site that I do identify as Christian, um, although a lot of the folks that are supporters um, I know have left the church um, uh, or many are atheists or um, 
you know, just want nothing to do with religion, religion, um, which I understand. And I, and I try to elevate all of those voices, but I also think, um, just knowing my own experience, um, you know, for someone I wanted to, I want to stay in the church and for other people who want to stay in the church, I think it's important for them to hear those voices, um, as well. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's crazy that even once you've rejected the entire belief system that some of these, um, some of these feelings and fears can still stick with you. Yeah. And that was the biggest, that was the biggest lesson even before I started the site that really struck me because I've um, always had friends of different beliefs. Um, that was when another good thing my parents did, they, we, we were not, we, they never really surrounded us with all Christian people. We were never really in a Christian bubble. And so um, I had always known people with different beliefs, um, but it didn't really hit me how how much that can be a part of someone's life, even if they've never set foot in another church in their whole lives. Um, and building those relationships online, that was, um, I, that, that's what that really taught me was um, this stuff really does stay with you. Um, and there's a lot of folks that actively write about it who um, are no longer religious and yet they understand, yeah, like they understand that this stuff has stayed with them. And um, that was really significant and it makes sense. Um, but you know, that was a really significant thing to learn. Yeah. And I know this is something that, um, that you've been tracking for a while now. So who do you think, um, what are some of the people online who are writing about this that um, someone should pay attention to if, if they're dealing with, with this kind of issue? Uh, actually, I actually have a Twitter list. Um, oh, nice. I call it purity culture warriors. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, nice. I actually I'd probably need to update it. Well, first and foremost, there's Diana Anderson. I think she was between, I think she was one of the people I first started hearing the term purity culture from, and she's uh, the author of Damaged Goods. There is uh, Tope. Um, I I cannot remember how to pronounce her last name, but she is on Twitter as Grace is Human. She also talks. She has written for um, Rewire in the past about purity culture. And uh, she's actually um, second generation Nigerian American, um, also similar to me, grew up around a lot of white evangelicals. And and she's actually written a lot of good things about it. Um, there is uh, Queer Theology, uh, which I cannot recommend enough. Uh, that was started by um, uh, uh, Shea uh, Kearns who's a transgender um, ordained minister. And um, I forgot the name of the person that runs it with him, um, who's a gay cisgender man. I think his name is Brian. But they run queer theology, uh, and they write uh, a lot about being LGBTQ um, issues from a theological perspective, and it's a whole community um, definitely worth, worth checking out. Let's see. I'll have to put, I'll have to make a list because there's, uh, there's people I'm, they're running through my mind. Um, LL, um, I would say LL Cruz Lopez also, um, a bisexual, um, organizer has written a lot. Um, I think he's written for Sojourners, um, about being mm -hmm. bisexual. He started, uh, Faithfully LGBT. Um, it was a hashtag and then it's now, um, I think an organization, um, that's mm -hmm. really important. Um, Hannah Pash and Emily and Emily Joy, two phenomenal young women um, who uh, 
have also uh, talked a lot about purity culture. They actually started something called the Purity Culture Rehab Project. Um, they were the ones who started uh, Church Two. So, you know, there's the Me Too hashtag mm-hmm. and they um, came out with Church Two, um, which was a hashtag to talk about sexual harassment, abuse in the church. Uh, they're definitely two just really bright women um, who um, have done a lot of really good work um, around this. There's a blog called um, Tell Me Why the World is Weird. And it's a young woman um, who writes what I, I would say is probably the most comprehensive breakdowns of purity culture that I've seen, um, particularly when it comes to relationships. Uh, she's recently married, so she talks a lot about um, her, how it plays out in her own marriage. Um, but definitely, I, I, I wish, I, I always want to drive traffic to them because I think, I think it's a really good site. I know I'm leaving someone out. <laughs> uh, it's like it's like thanking people at the Oscars. Yeah. <laughs> it's like don't oh wanna... Samantha Field, Samantha Field, um, also oh, blogs yeah, yeah. about this and yeah. Um, and as far as and then there's also just folks on Twitter um, who talk a lot about this stuff. Some that don't necessarily have their own blog. Um, there's there's and there's actually and I have a list of those folks as well. Um, there's uh, Verdell Wright. And Jessica Sanders, they have a podcast called Dell and Jess, and um, they talk about um, Christianity and theology and also kind of from an evangelical lens. Um, Linda K. Klein, that's what I was leaving out. Uh, She actually wrote a book that I am actually quoted in that she interviewed me for uh, about also about purity culture. Um, Also, someone around around my age um who grew up uh sort of in that community and um came to sort of leave it behind and leave the teachings behind and her book is coming out sometime next year and and she's also um i'm really excited about it uh about just about some of the stuff she's going to be doing but yeah but i have a link to um like I said, people that either blog about it or talk about it a lot online. Um, I have a link to that list on the No Shame Movement uh, Twitter page. And so, and that's also a good reminder for me to check to update that. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good people. Um, my hope is that the, it be, can, continues to become more diverse. I think it's overwhelmingly, I think a lot of the folks, it's overwhelmingly white and it's overwhelmingly um, straight and cisgender. And of course I include myself in the last two. Um, and one of the things that I really hope to happen from my site is that it inspires other people to start, you know, I have, I'm a big believer in staying in my lane. And, um, I, when I talk about sexuality, I talk about it from my lens. Um, I don't, um, I don't, for example, I'm, I don't have a disability. Um, or I don't have a visible disability, actually. And so there are people who talk about um, sexuality and disability who are people who are disabled. Um, and mm-hmm. so, like, I like elevating them because they are more qualified to talk about that. Women who are plus sized or people who are non-binary. Um, like there's I try again, I, I elevate those. But um, the person who can talk the most nuance about those subjects are the people who are in those categories. And so um, that's one big thing is I hope to see 
more diversity. I think there's a lot of great voices um, uh, that are talking now, um, but there's always something new to learn. I mean, I'm always learning something new from um, the people that write into the site or the people I talk with online um, about purity culture from a different perspective. So, yeah. Yeah, and so if, if someone listening um, feels like their voice isn't being heard, what's the best way for them to to get in touch with you or to share their story through uh, your site? Email would be the best. Um, they, I mean, if they want to talk to me, um, they can email me, and um, um, it's always and I and I'm always glad. I don't get a whole lot of emails, but um, I either get uh, people who um, like what I'm saying or people um, that take the time to admonish me for promoting. Um, what is it? Promiscuity is promoting Satan. That was a favorite. I was promoting <laughs> Satan. That was actually on a blog I wrote, a blog post I wrote. Um, or um, shaming virginity. That was my favorite. That's also my favorite. You're shaming virgins. You're shaming abstinence. Um, and and that's my and also and that's when I tell them I'm actually currently abstinent, but sure I'm shaming it. <laughs> I'm doing it by choice, but, um, but yeah, uh, so if they want to talk to me, um, they can email me, uh, no shave move at gmail.com. Um, as and it's N O S H A M E M O V at gmail.com. If they want to share a story, uh, they can go to no shame movement.com. Um, right now it's hosted through, through Tumblr. So, um, if you have a Tumblr account, you can uh, share um, like a story, um, uh, you know, sort of a thought um, or anything like that. You can share that on the, on the website. Um, many people ask questions. Um, and again, someone who stays in my lane, um, many people ask relationship questions, which um, I am absolutely not qualified to answer. Because <laughs> my longest one has lasted like, I don't know, a few weeks, two months. So... <laughs> Um, <laughs> I tell them, you know, yeah. here's what I think, but I cannot give you advice on that. <laughs> um, so people can ask questions, but often, you know, most of the time, if I don't know the answer, or if I don't really feel like it's in my wheelhouse, I'll pose it to the rest of the readers. Um, but yeah, but, and I'm also, um, fairly soon going to start, um, doing a little bit more promotion of, um, getting people to share their stories. Because, again, kind of going back to I've been doing just a lot of curating right now and just putting um, purity culture related news on the site. But I want to go back to stories. And one of the biggest I think there's like a lot of great bloggers. The biggest thing is um, when there's someone, you know, digging their heels in and saying, as there are quite a few won't name names, um, but it's a coalition of gospel people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but when folks are digging their heels in and they say, well, this stuff isn't harmful and I can write a post or I can um, post um, 10 stories um, that are similar to each other, right. proving them wrong. And so for me, the site, like, that's really what I wanted to do is um, like, here are some receipts for maybe. So maybe purity culture didn't harm you but it harmed a lot of other people and here are their stories. And, you know, it's harder. Well, and they'll still argue with them, but it's harder to argue with 10 people or a hundred people. Um, we're all telling you the same thing. Bless their hearts. They will still try. But so yeah, that's the biggest thing. You can also tweet 
the site. Are you can tweet um, me as well? Especially if you have links, people send links sometimes um, to things that are of interest or like their own stories. Um, people that share stories on the purity culture hashtag, um, I try to look for those as well. So yeah, um, yeah, those are the three main ways. Awesome. Cool. Well, loved talking uh, to you about this, Laura. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. Um, and thank you, everyone listening. Definitely uh, check out No Shame Movement. Um, and we will be back soon with more. Mm-hmm.